Chapter thirty four of He Knew He Was Right. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ariel Lipshaw. He Knew He Was Right by Anthony Trollope. Chapter thirty four Priscilla's Wisdom. On the night after the dinner party in the close, Dorothy was not the only person in the house who laid awake thinking of what had taken place. Miss Stanbury also was full of anxiety, and for hour after hour could not sleep as she remembered the fruitlessness of her efforts on behalf of her nephew and niece. It had never occurred to her, when she had first proposed to herself that Dorothy should become Mrs. Gibson, that Dorothy herself would have any objection to such a step in life. Her fear had been that Dorothy would have become over-radiant with triumph at the idea of having a husband, and going to that husband with a fortune of her own. That Mr. Gibson might hesitate she had thought very likely. It is thus in general that women regard the feelings, desires, and aspirations of other women. You will hardly ever meet an elderly lady who will not speak of her juniors as living in a state of breathless anxiety to catch husbands. And the elder lady will speak of the younger as though any kind of choice in such catching was quite disregarded. The man must be a gentleman, or at least gentleman-like, and there must be bread. Let these things be given, and what girl won't jump into what man's arms? Female reader, is it not thus that the elders of your sex speak of the younger? When old Mrs. Stanbury heard that Nora Rowley had refused Mr. Glasscock, the thing was to her unintelligible, and it was now quite unintelligible to Miss Stanbury that Dorothy should prefer a single life to matrimony with Mr. Gibson. It must be acknowledged, on Aunt Stanbury's behalf, that Dorothy was one of those yielding, hesitating, submissive young women, trusting others but doubting ever of themselves, as to whom it is natural that their stronger friends should find it expedient to decide for them. Miss Stanbury was almost justified in thinking that unless she were to find a husband for her niece, her niece would never find one for herself. Dorothy would drift into being an old maid like Priscilla, simply because she would never assert herself, never put her best foot foremost. Aunt Stanbury had therefore taken upon herself to put out a foot, and having carefully found that Mr. Gibson was willing, had conceived that all difficulties were over. She would be enabled to do her duty by her niece, and establish comfortably in life, at any rate, one of her brother's children. And now Dorothy was taking upon herself to say that she did not like the gentleman. Such conduct was almost equal to writing for a penny newspaper. On the following morning after breakfast, when Brooke Burgess was gone out to call upon his uncle, which he insisted upon doing openly, and not under the rose, in spite of Miss Stanbury's great gravity on the occasion, there was a very serious conversation, and poor Dorothy had found herself to be almost silenced. She did argue for a time, but her argument seemed, even to herself, to amount to so little. Why shouldn't she love Mr. Gibson? That was a question which she found it impossible to answer. And though she did not actually yield, though she did not say that she would accept the man, still, when she was told that three days were to be allowed to her for consideration, and that then the offer would be made to her in form, she felt that, as regarded the anti-Gibson interest, she had not a leg to stand upon. Why should not such an insignificant creature as was she love Mr. Gibson, or any other man who had bread to give her, and was in some degree like a gentleman? On that night she wrote the following letter to her sister. The Close, Tuesday. Dearest Priscilla, I do so wish that you could be with me, so that I could talk to you again. Aunt Stanbury is the most affectionate and kindest friend in the world, but she has always been so able to have her own way, because she is both clever and good, that I find myself almost like a baby with her. She has been talking to me again about Mr. Gibson, and it seems that Mr. Gibson really does mean it. It is certainly very strange, but I do think now that it is true. He is to come on Friday. 
It seems very odd that it should all be settled for him in that way, but then Aunt Stanbury is so clever at settling things. He sat next to me almost all the evening yesterday, but he didn't say anything about it, except that he hoped I agreed with him about going to church and all that. I suppose I do, and I am quite sure that if I were to be a clergyman's wife I should endeavor to do whatever my husband thought right about religion. One ought to try to do so, even if the clergyman is not one's husband. Mr. Burgess has come, and he was so very amusing all the evening that perhaps that was the reason Mr. Gibson said so little. Mr. Burgess is a very nice man, and I think Aunt Stanbury is more fond of him than of anybody. He is not at all the sort of person that I expected. But if Mr. Gibson does come on Friday, and does really mean it, what am I to say to him? Aunt Stanbury will be very angry if I do not take her advice. I am quite sure that she intends it all for my happiness. And then, of course, she knows so much more about the world than I do. She asks me what it is that I expect. Of course I do not expect anything. It is a great compliment from Mr. Gibson, who is a clergyman, and thought well of by everybody, and nothing could be more respectable. Aunt Stanbury says that with the money she would give us we should be quite comfortable, and she wants us to live in this house. She says that there are thirty girls round Exeter who would give their eyes for such a chance, and looking at it in that light, of course, it is a very great thing for me. Only think how poor we have been! And then, dear Priscilla, perhaps he would let me be good to you and dear Mamma. But of course he will ask me whether I love him, and what am I to say? Aunt Stanbury says that I am to love him. Begin to love him at once, she said this morning. I would if I could, partly for her sake, and because I do feel that it would be so respectable. When I think of it, it does seem such a pity that poor I should throw away such a chance. And I must say that Mr. Gibson is very good and most obliging, and everybody says that he has an excellent temper, and that he is a most prudent, well-dispositioned man. I declare, dear Priscilla, when I think of it, I cannot bring myself to believe that such a man should want me to be his wife. But what ought I to do? I suppose when a girl is in love, she is very unhappy if the gentleman does not propose to her. I am sure it would not make me at all unhappy if I were told that Mr. Gibson had changed his mind. Dearest Priscilla, you must write at once because he is to be here on Friday. Oh, dear, Friday does seem to be so near, and I shall never know what to say to him either one way or the other. Your most affectionate sister, Dorothy Stanbury. P.S. Give my kindest love to Mamma, but you need not tell her unless you think it best. Priscilla received this letter on the Wednesday morning, and felt herself bound to answer it on that same afternoon. Had she postponed her reply for a day, it would still have been in Dorothy's hands before Mr. Gibson could have come to her on the dreaded Friday morning. But still that would hardly give her time enough to consider the matter with any degree of deliberation, after she should have been armed with what wisdom Priscilla might be able to send her. The post left Nuncompatney at three, and therefore the letter had to be written before their early dinner. So Priscilla went into the garden and sat herself down under an old cedar, that she might discuss the matter with herself in all its bearings. She felt that no woman could be called upon to write a letter that should be of more importance. The whole welfare in life of the person who was dearest to her would probably depend upon it. The weight upon her was so great that she thought for a while she would take counsel with her mother, but she felt sure that her mother would recommend the marriage, and that if she afterwards should find herself bound to oppose it, then her mother would be a miserable woman. There could be no use to her in taking counsel with her mother, because her mother's mind was known to her beforehand. The responsibility was thrown upon her, and she alone must bear it. She tried hard to persuade herself to write at once and tell her sister to marry the man. She knew her sister's heart so well as to be sure that Dorothy would learn to love the man who was her husband. 
it was almost impossible that Dorothy should not love those with whom she lived, and then her sister was so well adapted to be a wife and a mother. Her temper was so sweet, she was so pure, so unselfish, so devoted, and so healthy withal, she was so happy when she was acting for others, and so excellent in action when she had another one to think for her. She was so trusting and trustworthy that any husband would adore her. Then Priscilla walked slowly into the house, got her prayer-book, and returning to her seat under the tree read the marriage service. It was one o'clock when she went upstairs to write her letter, and it had not yet struck eleven when she first seated herself beneath the tree. Her letter, when written, was as follows. Nuncomputney, August 25th. 1860 blank. Dearest Dorothy, I got your letter this morning, and I think it is better to answer it at once, as the time is very short. I have been thinking about it with all my mind, and I feel almost awe-stricken lest I should advise you wrongly. After all, I believe that your own dear sweet truth and honesty would guide you better than anybody else can guide you. You may be sure of this, that whichever way it is I shall think that you have done right. Dearest sister, I suppose there can be no doubt that for most women a married life is happier than a single one. It is always thought so, as we may see by the anxiety of others to get married. And when an opinion becomes general, I think that the world is most often right. And then, my own one, I feel sure that you are adapted both for the cares and for the joys of married life. You would do your duty as a married woman happily, and would be a comfort to your husband, not a thorn in his side, as are so many women. But my pet, do not let that reasoning of Aunt Stanbury's about the thirty young girls who would give their eyes for Mr. Gibson have any weight with you. You should not take him because thirty other young girls would be glad to have him. And do not think too much of that respectability of which you speak. I would never advise my dolly to marry any man unless she could be respectable in her new position, but that alone should go for nothing. Nor should our poverty. We shall not starve, and even if we did that would be but a poor excuse. I can find no escape from this that you should love him before you say that you will take him. But honest, loyal love need not, I take it, be of that romantic kind which people write about in novels and poetry. You need not think him to be perfect, or the best or grandest of men. Your heart will tell you whether he is dear to you. And remember, Dolly, that I shall remember that love itself must begin at some precise time. Though you had not learned to love him when you wrote on Tuesday, you may have begun to do so when you get this on Thursday. If you find that you love him, then say that you will be his wife. If your heart revolts from such a declaration as being false, if you cannot bring yourself to feel that you prefer him to others as the partner of your life, then tell him, with thanks for his courtesy, that it cannot be as he would have it. Yours always, and ever most affectionately, Priscilla. End of chapter 34 Recording by Arielle Lipshaw in New York City